All right, well, find your seat and open your Bibles to Genesis 24. We've got 67 verses this week, all right? So we'll be here for a while. Teasing. Genesis 24. Now, just for, just for my own um, understanding, just maybe by a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of the story of Isaac and Rebekah, how God provides a wife for Isaac? Let me see your hands if you've heard that story before. All right, so a good few of you have. That helps me just to get a sense of uh, where, we, where we are. We're going to look at this, uh, this text, and uh, it's, a great, uh, it's a great story. It's a great, uh, great chapter, and uh, we're going to look at it together. Let's pray, and we'll just ask for God's wisdom as we look at it. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace, and even as we've thought about the, uh, the lavish outpouring of your love uh, that you've given to us uh, in Christ, now, Father, our hearts are full of joy and encouraged that we can stand right before you, not because we are good, but because Jesus was good for us, and that in him we can be declared right before you. Father, what a blessing. What an incredible thing. And so, Father, I pray that uh, we would encourage one another with that, that, uh, Father, even as we have, have sung, we pray that that would have been an encouragement to our hearts. And God, this is that you would work in us. Thank you, Father, that in Christ you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. And, Father, in your word you have told us everything that you have wanted us to know. And we can trust it, we can look at it, we can read it over and over again, and your Spirit still works through it in us. So thank you for that. Father, we pray that as we take these moments and consider what is here before us, we pray, Father, that your Spirit would use that to shape our lives, to challenge our hearts, to encourage us as we will leave this place and go back out into the world We pray, Father, that you would work. Would you take a few moments quietly? Don't say anything out loud, but but just ask God to speak to your heart today. And then would you take a few moments and just pray for me that God would speak through me. Father, we need you. And Father, there are people in this room that know that they need you. And so I pray that you would meet them where they are, that you would meet us where we are. Father, there are people in this room that don't know that they need you. And I pray that your spirit would convince them of that, that they might see in Jesus the way to life today. So, Father, we ask your help. I pray that you would help me. We thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you've ever been caught with an obstacle in your path that prevented you from moving forward, and you, you needed someone else to clear it before you could proceed. I remember years ago, Mandy and I would go uh, snow skiing every year, uh, with some of her family. And we lived in Texas where there is no snow, so we would have to drive to Colorado where there was snow. 
And uh, so it was a once a year deal. It was a really special time for us because it was two or three days unlike any other days of the year that we got. And so we really looked forward to it. And one year we drove all the way 12 hours, drove up to Colorado, and we were really excited about skiing. And as we drove up to the, uh, what is it? some of them Colorado, what is it? It's a, a, a lodge or a, a ski resort place, right? Where you ski. So we drove up and as we got to the, to the, to the height of the pass, we had to go over the mountain and down to the, 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 the resort. Uh, there had been an incredible amount of snow and the road was blocked. And so we're stuck. Not only are we not able to ski, but we're stuck in traffic now, right? It's all backed up and we're just stuck. We're not going anywhere. And there was nothing we could do about it. We needed someone else to come in and clear away the snow so that we could proceed where we wanted to go. I think we probably all just got out of the car up to the side of the road and started playing in the snow because it was snow and it was foreign to us. Uh, but we had this obstacle. We couldn't get around it. We needed someone to clear it. I wonder if you've ever been in that place. If you've ever been in that place where you weren't sure how you were going to overcome this obstacle that was in front of you. Indeed, maybe even coming to the place where you realized you couldn't overcome it and you needed someone to clear it out. Perhaps an illness that was all of a sudden foisted upon you and it became this obstacle and there was nothing you could do about it. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps uh, you, you know, some sense in which you needed direction about how to proceed. Uh, you felt like you were at a crossroads. And you needed to turn right or turn left. Maybe you're in university and that's presenting itself as an obstacle for you, right? And, and you, you're not sure how you're going to get around it. Well, this story here in Genesis 24, this is the longest narrative in Genesis, apart from the Joseph story, which extends to, to multiple chapters. And in this story, we have got an obstacle, uh, there is an obstacle in the way of, of God's plan. Remember this plan that he is, uh, he is unveiling, unfolding in the life of his chosen one, Abraham. Now, listen, if, if you've ever heard this story before, I want to resist this temptation today. This is not a story about marriage. It's not a story about how to find a wife or a husband, okay? Don't try to, don't, don't think, okay, this is what I do if I want a man or a woman. This is how I go about it. No, this is not a story about finding a mate. It's not even really a story about how to find God's will, even though we're going to talk about that in a few moments. This is a story about the overcoming of an obstacle, a big one. And this is something to which we can all relate. Now, the story is it's filled with tension. In fact, the way the author develops the story is a lot like, have you ever taken a rock and skimmed it across the water? And it just boom, 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 boom. We're going to move in the story as it unfolds from tension to tension to tension. And that tension is going to carry us all the way through as we answer these questions that get raised in our minds as we go. We're going to feel this tension that these obstacles produce as we wonder how this is all going to play out. 
Because here's the thing when we face obstacles and we face the tension that obstacles bring to us. It can be scary. It can produce fear in us. Because when we see things we can't handle, oftentimes we don't know what to do. The driving question of our text today is how will a wife be found for Isaac in order to continue the development of this family of promise? Abraham is probably 140 years old in Genesis 24. Sarah, his wife, has died. If a wife is not found for Isaac, the family of promise ends. It ends. So this is a big problem. And when we consider the the scale of the problem, there's a lot of girls among the Canaanites. But Abraham says, no, I don't want you to take one from there. I want you to go back to Mesopotamia and find one there. It becomes even more profound. Will the family of promise die out with Abraham? And then we think again about the obstacles that we face in our lives. Who will overcome those if we cannot? Well, look, I want to just tell you this story. We're not going to go through all 67 verses. I want to tell you this story as we move from tension to tension to tension. And then I want to bring it back to make a couple of points at the end. As we get to Genesis 24, there's a problem brewing in the road ahead for Abraham and the covenant family. And so in these early verses, Abraham brings in his servant, his oldest, most reliable servant. Perhaps it's Eleazar. We don't know who it is. But he poses this problem to his servant. A wife needs to be found for Isaac, the promised son. If there's no wife found, then the nation that has begun with Abraham and Sarah doesn't continue. Verse 1, Abraham is old. He's 140. Uh, At this point, Sarah's died. But Abraham, even as he tells his servant this, senses a danger in allowing a wife to be chosen from among the Canaanites. He instructs the servant to go back to Mesopotamia. The danger of uh, assimilating with the surrounding culture is going to be a problem for the Israelites Uh, through the ages. Because as they assimilate with the culture, they lose their uniqueness and they're tempted to wander away from Yahweh. It's always easier. You know this. It's always easier for a a, a non-worshipper to bring a worshipper down than it is for a worshipper to bring a non-worshipper up, right? And Abraham knows this. He senses that danger. And so Abraham makes his servant swear that he'll go back to where Abraham comes from in order to find a wife for Isaac. And under no circumstance, uh, no circumstances uh, is the servant to give up in that task. Uh, for, for Abraham, uh, it is critically important that a wife be found from his homeland. So, there you go, servant. There, there you go, Eliezer. There's your task, right? Go for it. Find a wife uh, and make sure she is a good one. 
But that, that raises another problem in the servant's mind. Okay, fine. Well, what if I find a wife for Isaac, but she's not willing to relocate in order to marry a man she's never met who lives in a place she's probably never heard of? Ladies, right? Isn't this a potential problem? What if, that, what if I find a woman, but she's not willing to go? And it's at this point that we are reminded that Abraham is a man of faith. Because Abraham doesn't believe that God is going to give up on this venture. He doesn't believe that God is going to abandon his covenant promise. In verse 3, Abraham refers to God as the God of heaven and earth. He's the God of everything. He is the God of everywhere. There is nowhere that he is not God. And so he tells his servant, listen, God will provide. God will provide. You don't worry about it. He will see to it. You just don't give up. That's your job. You just don't give up on the quest, okay? God will provide. Let him worry about the details. Just look at verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. You let God worry about it. You just don't give up because he's not going to give up on his plan. So here we go. We're off and running. Uh, the servant departs in verse 10. He has a lot of stuff, so he takes 10 camels with him. This is a regular uh, train of, uh, uh, of creatures and people that are going off to this land in this quest for Isaac's bride. Now, I know what you're thinking. How is he going to find this woman that God is going to provide. It's kind of like finding a needle in a haystack, isn't it? Uh, how is he going to find this woman? Well, as he finally arrives in Abraham's home place, perhaps a, a month later, was how long the journey took, he devises a, a little test, a, a means by which he can inquire of God and hear God's answer to him. Now, if that sounds familiar, this is similar to what we see Gideon do in Judges chapter 6. Remember, he lays the fleece out at the, the, the door twice. Uh, we see it again in 1 Samuel chapter 6. The Philistines do this uh, with the, the Ark of the Covenant as well. It's something that is unique to this particular day and time. There's no priest. There's no temple. There's no prophet. It only happens in those three places uh, in the scriptures. It's not, as we'll talk about later, it's not an example of how we should try to hear from God today. All right? But this is what the servant does. He devises this, this kind of test. Now, in order for this to work, it has to be something big, something that, that wouldn't normally happen. And so in that day, anyone would have shown hospitality by offering a drink of water. It wouldn't be enough for the servant to say, okay, God, wh whoever offers me a drink of water, that's the one. Because everyone would have done that in this particular time. That was the cultural expectation. And so the servant adds to the request that this chosen woman would not just offer him a drink, 
but would offer to water all ten of his camels. Now that is over the top. That is extraordinary. It's almost supernatural. Camels are thirsty animals. In case you didn't know, someone noted that a thirsty camel could drink almost a hundred liters of water. A hundred liters of water. It would take about eight, eight trips of drawing water up to water one camel. And there's ten camels. Anyone in, ladies? No, no, th- this is extraordinary. It's almost supernatural. And so this servant's request that God would reveal this wife-to-be uh, as the one who gives him a drink and also offers to water his camels is set up. And in verse 12, the servant is confident that God is going to keep his word and act. He's confident that God is going to be faithful to Abraham and the promises that he's made to him. And he hasn't even finished speaking. He hasn't even finished setting this up when up comes Rebecca to the well. And she ticks all the boxes. She does what we would expect her to do. She gives the man a drink. And then here it is in verse 19. She offers to water all of his camels. And as he is kind of sipping back, uh, sitting back, sipping his, his water, uh, she's going up and down, drawing the water to water all of these camels in accordance with the way God is unfolding these circumstances. He's just sitting there while all of these things are unfolding right before his eyes. In verse 27, he sees God is behind this. This is God moving these circumstances forward in accordance with his plan. Great. A woman has been identified. But what do we wonder now? What will her family say? Who is this woman? Who is her family? And what will they say about this. Well, fast forward, we're at the dining room table now with Laban, her brother, and the rest of her family. Uh, they're they're going to conduct some, some, some business. The, the tea is there, right? The tea is hot. Uh, the biscuits are out, and they're all there. The, they're going to listen to what this man has to say. Will they agree to give their daughter in marriage to this stranger. And they listen as the servant recounts the whole story. Verses 34 all the way to verse 48 are all just the servant recounting the story of what God is doing, what he's done in Abraham and how he's arrived. And two times in those verses, the servant attributes everything that's happened to this point to the hand of God, to God orchestrating these events and moving these circumstances forward. And then in verse 49, he puts the question to them. Verse 49 says, will you let her go? Will you let her go? So what will they say? 
Will they say yes? Will they say no? Will they stand in the way of God providing a wife for Isaac, the promised son? Well, in verses 50 and 51, they recognize that all of this has been set in motion by the Lord, and they agree to let Rebekah go. But what will Rebekah say? Will Rebekah choose to go? And so the question is put to her, not in terms of the, the whole arrangement. Sorry, ladies, that, that's just that's not the way they did things back then. Uh, but the question is put to her in terms of timing. Will she be agreeable to go immediately? Will she be agreeable to leave immediately? Will she em- embrace this? as God's providential plan? Or will she begrudgingly go later, fighting it as long as she can? This is the climactic section. It's the height of the tension. Will she go now? And in verse 58, she says, I will go. She says, I will go. And in the final act, in verses 62 to 67, Isaac and Rebekah see each other from afar, from a distance. Will they love each other? We might ask. That's not really a question that's asked in the text, but it seems so. Isaac takes her into his mother's tent, and now Rebekah takes on the role of matriarch within the covenant family. So a wife has been found For Isaac, the covenant family can continue as God can unfold, continue to unfold his blessing within this family. We can all breathe a sigh of relief as God has overcome this obstacle. And this was a big obstacle with a lot of little obstacles along the way. And even as we heard it, no doubt we felt the tension in the story. And that's the problem, isn't it? That obstacles in our way feel overwhelming. But I don't want you to miss the point of the story. Again, this, this is not a story about finding a wife. It's not even a story about how to discern God's will. The point is that there is no obstacle that overwhelms God. That God is always moving all things forward to his appointed end in accordance with his sovereign will. See, the hero of this story is not Abraham. The hero of this story is not his servant, it's, even though he's faithful. It's not Laban. It's not even Rebekah. The hero of this story is God. He is the God, in verse 3, of all places, of heaven and of earth. He is the faithful one who never slacks in his covenant-keeping love. Just go back and circle verse 7, and verse 12, and verse 27, and verse 40, and verse 48, where we see that God is the God of steadfast covenant-keeping love. He is the hero. He is the one who providentially directs all things in order to provide a wife for Isaac. Now, maybe that term providence is new to you. What do we mean when we say providence? Isn't it enough to say that God is sovereign? Well, yes and no. 
Sovereignty stresses God's right and his ability to do whatever he pleases. So yes, God is sovereign. We see that in this story. Providence, though, stresses God's purpose in sovereignly moving all things in history to his appointed end. The word providence simply means seize to it. And so when we talk about the providence of God, we mean that God sees that his purposes are fulfilled. He takes responsibility in acting with intention as he provides for, as he sustains, as he governs the world according to his will. He takes care of it. He takes care of it. Think back to Genesis 22. We saw the story of Abraham and Isaac as they go up the mountain. Uh, Abraham has been told to sacrifice Isaac. And as they walk up the mountain, Isaac says to Abraham, Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham looks at Isaac and he says, God will provide the lamb. God will see to it. He will handle it. And then later in that same chapter in verse 14, Abraham names the place the Lord provides. The Lord sees to it. The Lord will handle it. So the accomplishment of God's plan doesn't stand or fall on us. He handles it. He sees to it as the God of providence. So what does that mean for us? And the obstacles that we face. Does God's providence mean that we become fatalistic? That is that we just sit back and do nothing because, hey, God's going to handle it. Do we cower in fear? What is our response to the God of heaven and earth here today as we look at the obstacles that we face? Well, in a great paradox, I think it's a paradox anyway, in a, in a great paradox, we both rest and we wrestle, trusting that God guides and gives in His time and in His way. So believing that God guides us as He moves all things to His appointed end, we wrestle in prayer as we wait. Now, prayer is not a means of manipulating God by demanding certain things from him, as if he is bound to act in whatever way we want him to act. We don't know what God will do, and we don't know how God will do what God wants to do. Psalm 115.3, God is in, he in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He is sovereign, not us. You know, my friends at the golf course, they, they think of God as a kind of genie. Uh, if they want good weather, they ask me to pray for it. And they think that if I pray for it, well, then God's going to give. It's going to be like the, the Costa del Sol or something, right? And God isn't a genie, is he? Uh, or sometimes, you know, we, we th sometimes neither is God a politician. You know, sometimes we think, well, if I can just get enough people praying for something, then it'll tip the scales, and then God will be compelled to act lest he get voted off the island or something, you know. 
But God is not a genie. He's not a, a politician. And, and then this is the problem with the, the hoops that we often lay out for God to jump through. In one sense, the way this servant did. The, these kinds of tests, when we lay them out, are often just thinly veiled attempts to try to control and manipulate God. Because what these become are demands that God act in a specific way at a specific time. And God has never promised that He will act in accordance with those kind of demands. If you look in Genesis 24, God never promised that He would respond to the servant's test that He laid out. So when we do this, when we think of prayer or when we think of laying out these hoops for God, at best, it is an unreliable guide. At worst, it's an attempt to make God our servant. Now again, this was a different time. And God graciously responded in accordance with the servant's request in Genesis 24. But in the progress of Revelation, this is not how we discern the will of God today. So going on from here, we see in the Old Testament, we see the, the Urim and the Tumen, which is something that the high priest alone wore and was able, God was able to speak through that as the high priest took matters to him. Then God begins to deliver oracles through the prophets. And then he speaks through Jesus, the incarnate Son, and then through the indwelling Spirit, and finally through the written Word. And so for us, discerning God's will today becomes a matter of faithful obedience as the transforming, as the transforming power of the Spirit works through His Word in leading us in accordance with God's will. He does that through the community of faith. He does that through His Word as He transforms our minds. Romans 12, verse 2, don't, don't be conformed, but allow your mind to be renewed by the Spirit so that you will know the will of God. That as the Spirit transforms our minds, we begin to naturally do those things that are God's will as He guides us. So, wrestling in prayer as we wait is not an attempt to control God. We pray that God would act in accordance with His providential plan. That He would guide us through His Word and Spirit. We pray for eyes to see, then, how He is guiding us, how He is moving things. We pray for open and closed doors. We pray in community for wisdom. And in some way, God uses all those things to accomplish His purpose in us and through us. So rather than trying to manipulate circumstances, we respond to circumstances as we see what God is doing. This is what the servant ultimately did in Genesis 24. After laying out the, the test, he saw how God was orchestrating things and kept moving forward in response. 
Verse 21, the man gazed to learn whether the Lord had prospered him. Verse 27, blessed be the Lord. And they said, the Lord has led me in the way. In verse 48, he refers to God who led me in the right way. In verse 52, when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself before the Lord who had led him. So we don't passively sit by as fate runs its course. Waiting on God is an active exercise in which we wrestle in prayer and follow after God as He guides. The Spirit working through the Word in the community of faith to guide us. But our waiting is ultimately rooted in faith. It's ultimately a matter of trust. And this is our ultimate response As God moves around us and in us, we respond by taking steps of obedience in the confidence that God is in control, guiding us, moving us forward. And that is where we find rest. That no obstacle is too big for God. Because here's the fact. In Christ, God has overcome all obstacles. And that's the sweet spot for us. Jesus said in John 16, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So in Christ, God has overcome all obstacles. And we may not experience uh, that win fully in this life. But we can rest that we will ultimately see and share in the victory that is ours in Christ. Because God is faithful. And so we rest. Even as we wrestle. The whole time believing that God providentially guides and gives in His time and in His way. Even if only in the end. This life is a walk of faith, isn't it? And we all face obstacles as we walk it. But we trust in God's providence to guide us. We respond by taking steps of obedience as He moves. And the whole time we trust that ultimately God overcomes all things. This is the Christian life. It's a thousand little steps of faith. Even if the ground is foggy beneath us, we step in faith, believing that God is at work. Just a little homework assignment for you. This week, spend some time meditating on Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Written regarding the age to come, prophetically looking forward to what is ahead. How the Lord will, uh, will lower every mountain, will increase, will raise every valley to make the way smooth for His people who are called to wait on Him and rest in His faithfulness. Uh, let's pray together. And then we'll respond in song together. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. Thank you, Father, that we can say that you are in control 
of all things. Father, that you are sovereign and that you are able to move all things to your appointed end. And Father, I pray that for us, that that would be a comforting thought. That you are at work for your glory and our good. And there's no obstacle that can stand in your way. We thank you, Father, for your goodness and grace in Christ. Who has overcome every obstacle. And we pray, Father, that we would continually look to him. Even as we rest. In Jesus' name, amen.